This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yesterday, Christine Elliott was on the program. She, of course, is uh, uh, one of the candidates, some would suggest the leading candidate right now, to be the next leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, when I talked to her about 24 hours ago, we were under the assumption that they were probably going to announce the winner tomorrow at their convention in Markham, Ontario. Well, that may not happen now. An application has been heard in court, and actually they're going to get into court again and make a decision on this this morning about an injunction to stop this. The Ontario PC leadership race uh, may just have to hit the brakes right now because they say there are voting irregularities and problems with people not getting a chance to vote. This is an interesting twist. Peter Grafe joins us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University, to give us his take on this. Hi, Peter. How are you doing this morning? You there, Peter? Uh, yes, I am. Ah, thank, okay, good. Listen, uh, th- th- this is a race that has been so strange in so many different ways, maybe even starting with why they're actually having a race at this point and, and the way that it's gone on. I, I suppose maybe in that context we shouldn't be surprised by anything that comes our way. No, and I mean particularly given the fact that they had a very compressed uh, schedule for this election, uh, you know, it's not too surprising that there are a few administrative issues when you come towards a voting day. Although it is true, too, that they adopted a very complex voting process where people had to uh, get a code and then send in some scanned information to prove that they really were who they said they were. And uh, based on that, then they got sent another code to vote, or at least that's my impression of what the process was, which is a more complex system than I've seen in any leadership race uh, in the Canadian context to date. What's, what, what was wrong with the old days? Hey, let's all show up and mark them. Everybody gets a vote. I, I, I understand we have to move on with 21st century technology, but, but have they gone too far too fast and made it almost impossible for some people to follow? Uh, it could be. I mean, again, uh, I, I think when they chose Patrick Brown as a leader or when they were having the federal conservative uh, race where they chose Andrew Scheer just this past year, they didn't have as complex a process. I mean, it's in a, it's a sense, there's a sense of distrust among the camps that there are people who would try to cheat and so that you have to have a much higher degree of scrutiny, right? That just because you sold a membership at a certain address to a certain person, you can't assume that that person exists or is voting. And so, I mean, again, there's this uh, kind of distrust among the, the candidates, uh, a distrust, I think, that shows up again in this, this injunction. Which, again, I think the party uh, is fairly lucky that Ontarians aren't watching too closely because... You know, they, it doesn't seem like they trust each other, and yet they want us to trust us in a few months with, uh, you know, being the government. And so it's a bit of an, an odd uh, turn, of, turn of events. Well, you've heard the narrative, Peter, and I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that it's out there, and I'm sure it's obviously the NDP and the Liberals that are, are, are putting wind behind it right now, is that, look at it, if these guys can't even organize their own party, how do you expect them to run a province? Stuff like this doesn't really help that, that scenario. No, it doesn't. But again, I think... Most Ontarians, and just like most Canadians, when parties are choosing their leaders, they have a bit of interest in what's going on, but they aren't following too closely at the level of the process, and I think that will be the saving grace for the Conservatives, because I I think you're right that there's a number of different features of this race uh, that would lead Ontarians to maybe have questions about electing the Conservative Party as government, Uh, you know, whether it's a fact that they don't trust each other around these things, whether it's that... Uh, they're talking about Patrick Brown being so corrupt, but a few, you know, a month ago, they would have been happy to make him premier of uh, Ontario, or whether it's just a difficulty uh, of organizing a, a race. Although, I think in fairness on that last point, uh, when you have uh, a situation where you go from 200,000 members to 130,000, and then you have a race where uh, some people are saying it's back up near 2,000, I mean, to process 70,000 applications, 
uh, and engage in you know sending out the pins and so on so people can vote. I mean, it's pretty complicated in a small amount of time for an organization that doesn't do this every day. It's something it does maybe once every four or ten years. Trying to read between the lines, and that can always be a rather precarious uh, exercise, I guess, when you get into this. Uh, they say that it is not one candidate. It's just one of the people that hasn't been able to vote yet that's actually uh, pushing for this injunction at this stage. Yet when you listen to some of the stuff coming out of the Ford camp, for instance, or the Allen camp, for that matter, uh, they certainly are supportive of this idea, and they're, they're the ones that are talking about irregularities. I mean, listening to some of the stuff Doug Ford said over the last two or three days in particular, Peter, it's a, a very reminiscent. Uh, as, as he's channeling Donald Trump, you know, that the, the thing is rigged. That's, that's what he seems to be indicating here. Which is a really a vote of non-confidence. In, I mean, it's one thing to run for president when you're a one-person team in the United States. Well, I mean, then you build your team around you. It's another when, if you know, Doug Ford was to win this race, uh, suddenly these people who he's claiming have been engaging in improper behavior uh, are his running mates, and he needs them uh, to be elected if he's going to become premier in terms of how our system works. And so, I mean, that is a, a difference that's nevertheless relevant in terms of uh, what does it say uh, that he can say that one day, but the next day will be uh, turning around to tell Ontarians, I mean, presuming he wins, which he may not do, uh, but then be telling Ontarians that these are people they should trust as part of his team. Um, so, I mean, that is a bit odd, but uh, it is true that uh, his camp has been pushing a lot on this, whereas uh, Christine Elliott's camp has been happy with the way the system has worked. And so that would lead me to believe that they have quite different electoral bases in this in this camp in campaign, and they have different ideas about who's going to make the effort uh, to get uh, get through the process. So in other words, I think Christine Elliott, as a more establishment candidate, knows that sort of the hardcore, long-term stalwarts of the Conservative Party are motivated to vote, and will have gone through the process. Rob Ford probably has supporters who are a bit more joining him because they're angry. They're maybe new to the party. Uh, they're not used to these sorts of processes, and so are probably having a harder time making their way through the multi-stage process. Because I asked you, that. I had Christine Elliott on the show yesterday, Peter, and I asked specifically, because we'd all heard the rumblings that, uh, that there was some dissatisfaction with the voting process, and she said that she was fine with it, which, and I'm wondering if that's because her polling indicates that she's doing all right anyway, but, uh, and, and which leads to the next uh, obvious uh, possible solution here. Are Ford and Allen looking at this and figuring this is a Hail Mary pass for it and give us more time, because we're not doing as well as we thought. Yeah, I mean, I think it could work two different ways. I mean, one would be a Hail Mary pass because they figure that they signed up a lot of people, but they're not seeing those people registering. And so they want more time to try and, and reach them and make sure that they do register. Uh, the other aspect is that this kind of language plays to what they're doing to motivate people to vote. And so to say that there's a, a conservative party a hierarchy or a bunch of insiders who are preventing the people from speaking, which has been really Ford's position since he came into the race, um, you know, to remind voters of that probably reminds his base in particular that they want to vote and give a black eye, if you like, to that establishment. And so, uh, you know, probably plays in both ways. One, both trying to gain time, but second, to push people who haven't registered and gone out to vote to go and do that by reminding them about why they came into this race to support him. There's, there's a, again, I know we talked about this a couple of seconds ago, but there's a very, very strong essence of Trump to, to what Ford is doing here, isn't it? Trying to paint himself as the guy uh, that looks after, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Ontario, the blue-collar types, the ones that are always downtrodden by the elites, etc., notwithstanding the fact that he's from a very wealthy family, too, as Trump was, but that doesn't seem to matter. He, he still has this narrative, and he's sticking to it, and I, I guess his base certainly buy it. 
Well, I mean, it was effective for his brother running for mayor yeah. of Toronto, and when he ran for the mayor of Toronto, he also got a, a large number of votes, although the question was how many of those were really because uh, of the message and how much were sort of sympathy for his brother. But uh, I mean, clearly it's something that plays uh, and motivates people to get out to vote, uh, and so I think that really is a basis of where he would be campaigning if uh, he's successful as uh, leader of the, the Conservative Party. But again, you know, it's one thing for Trump to do that, and people talk about how Trump was blowing up the Republican Party. Um, but again, in the states, because you know you had all those Republicans in Congress, and Trump was running for president, you know, you could elect them and then work it out. But in this case, uh, you know, if, if uh, Ford wants to become Premier of Ontario, he has to ensure that the Conservatives elect more members than the other parties. And so, if he is ultimately contemptuous of his own party. Uh, or raises questions about the ethics or the uh, the willingness of the members of his party to listen to uh, to the people in the street. Uh, he's going to have a tough time when it comes to this election when he when he brings that out and people turn around and say, "But you said your own party is <laughs> deaf to those voices, so why should we be electing you premier?" Well, you know the scenario. No matter what political party we're looking at, after a leadership convention, they all want that one photo op right up on the podium where they're all holding hands together and usually their their arms raised and we're one happy family. That's the message they all want to do at the end of one of these things. It's going to be more and more difficult now because of some of the things that have gone on. And this this is the latest, I guess. In, in that package of things that are kind of showing there's some cracks here as opposed to unity. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting what comes at the end. I mean, it wouldn't be unthinkable if someone like uh, Doug Ford won that he actually wouldn't want <laughs> other people on stage, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, taking away from him being front and center. Uh, but it's true, similarly, if someone like Christine Elliott won, uh, it would be hard, I think, for some of the other candidates to, uh, I mean, particularly Ford and, and probably Allen as well, uh, to say that they were, you know, to join behind it and make it unanimous, because ultimately uh, there seem to be some pretty clear fault lines in, in the party and, and candidates who are not willing to, if you like, paper them over or concede that, uh, no, we'll, that they'll have to go forward on a different platform than they would have wanted. Let's talk about logistics for a second. And just maybe if we can just hypothesize for a second, Peter, let's assume that this injunction goes through. I don't know you know, what's going to happen this morning. We'll certainly be watching. But if that happens and they get, I guess it's a one-week extension they're looking for, I mean, the sand is ticking at the other end, or is going through the hourglass at the other end here. I mean, there's a provincial election coming up, and this is going to be a pretty short campaign for whoever the new leader is to try to become known across the province of Ontario and then to take on a sitting government, and notwithstanding the fact that Kathleen Wynne doesn't have a whole lot of popularity right now, but it's still pretty tough to knock off an incumbent. Uh, are they are they you know hurting themselves by extending this this leadership thing as opposed to getting on with the campaign itself? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, certainly we haven't heard much about Kathleen Wynne in the past six weeks. I mean, she started to come a bit more into prominence with these town halls. You begin to see a bit more of an unveiling of uh, some things that will be in and around the budget, but. Uh, you know, really the conversation has turned away and, uh, you know, that in some ways the old adage, uh, there's no bad press, you know, any press is good press, uh, I think is applying for the Conservatives here. They've kept themselves in the centre and removed the the time from Kathleen Wynne, the time that Kathleen Wynne needs if she's trying to rebuild some kind of narrative about why Ontarians should re-elect the, uh, the, the Liberal government. So in that sense, I don't think it's hurting them that much. Uh, I mean, the, the the cost for them is that once they choose a leader, they do have to figure out what their platform is going to be and turn around and, and engage in that aspect of preparing for the election. So, uh, you know, that's the cost the longer they push it off. But other aspects of electoral preparation, it seems like they've done quite well, whether it's fundraising, uh, whether it's a candidate selection where they, you know, have a, a pretty strong 
number of candidates uh, selected already. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which uh, they can afford another week, although I suspect they don't want it because, it, again, it will create the sense of a party that's divided. It may also create kind of harder last-minute uh, attempts to try and get people to register and vote, which, again, may create uh, difficulties inside the Conservative Party. But I don't think it's a huge cost for them uh, to have another week of people asking who's the leader going to be rather than watching Kathleen Wynne make the case for why she should remain premier after the next election. Yeah, your point about media exposure, I think, is is, is well-placed in this discussion. Uh, again, again, here we go with another reference to Trump, but, I mean, he was on the news every night, the national news, on all the networks in the United States during that campaign. Now, they may, may have been for all the wrong reasons, but for, as you say, people that are just passively watching what's going on, there's Donald Trump again, there's Donald Trump again, and that, that puts that, that individual's, pay, whether it's going to be a Doug Ford or Donald Trump, in people's minds. So you're right. I mean, they're they're getting the publicity no matter what. And I don't know that a whole lot of people are paying attention as to why they're on the news. The fact is they're on the news all the time, and exposure does matter. Yeah, exposure matters, and it also, you know, sets a tone of what the coverage is going to be. It's about the sorts of issues that are important for members of the Conservative Party in choosing a leader, rather than it being coverage of, for instance, the other parties and their ideas about what would be important for Ontarians. And so... You know, in that way, it does. You know, it's not just that it's a, that they're on the news every day, but that also the topics of the news become those tied to that story. You know, and, and in the state's case, you know, what's what's Trump's latest outrage, rather than mm-hmm. uh, you know what might be you know other ideas that are being put out uh, in today's politics. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in this case, it really does limit, particularly the Liberals, but also the NDP's attempts to try and uh, reach Ontarians ahead of the election to begin to lay out or telegraph what the important themes are that they think we should be thinking about. The other scenario, of course, is if the injunction is denied and they go ahead with the voting and then they announce a winner, uh, <laughs> there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to try. I don't know if, if there's an appeal process, but there are going to be some pretty unhappy campers here that aren't going to like the result of this potentially for tomorrow anyway. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And I mean, not being a, a lawyer, I nevertheless am not expecting that injunction to succeed because the courts usually try to shy away from too close an involvement in the internal affairs of political parties. Um, but yes, in that situation, it will be important to see what the, the candidates, you know, who were uh, happy with the idea of an injunction do. I mean, do they use it simply as a, as a kind of face-saving excuse for why they didn't win, if that ends up being the case? Uh, you know, the, the, they didn't win the election, or do they push it more seriously and begin to already undermine the, the legitimacy or the leadership of who the new the new leader is? I mean, in this case, someone like Doug Ford, who, you know, until the start of the campaign was not planning to run for the Conservative Party, had never run for the Conservative Party, does he have necessarily a real sense of loyalty to that party uh, if it's not led by him? And so could he play a kind of wrecking role uh, which, again, would be interesting to see what comes out of that. He's activated a bunch of populist themes. Uh, is there you know, another leader or another party in Ontario who's able to capitalize on people being mobilized around that idea? Well, I know that after the last debate in Ottawa a week or so ago, he said that, you know, he'll, even if he doesn't win, he says, I'll support whoever it is and blah, blah, blah. But now, over the last couple of days, since this has come into the news, uh, he's now saying, well, I may just appeal this thing, which is really going to throw a monkey wrench into the works if he, he he's going to start causing that kind of trouble. And that's, again, going to be a distraction for the Conservatives, I would think, instead of looking ahead to what's going to happen in, in the, the spring election. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Mr. Ford in politics has always been a bit of an outrage machine. I mean, I think he sees that it works for him to, you know, make statements, and he can walk them back seemingly with impunity. Uh, But in the interim, he keeps his base riled up, and so it's hard to know whether these claims of appeals and so on are genuine or whether it's simply 
an attempt to look like a fighter and, you know, waiting to see what happens out of that. Uh, you know, he can always walk those things back, and it doesn't seem to really have any kind of cost to him in terms of his electoral base. Peter Grafe, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Peter, thanks so much for this this morning. You're welcome. Take care. We'll uh, be following what's going on, and of course, as soon as we get word out of the uh, courtroom in Toronto about what's happening with that injunction, we'll pass it on to you here at CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We'll get into uh, some of the Lock Street stuff, I'm sure, with our next guest, and uh, certainly some of the steel issues. Keenan Loomis is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, who is uh, with us uh, right now uh, to talk about those. We just mentioned before we started the segment, it's been a heck of a week for you. <laughs> it certainly has. Happy Friday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you resolved the steel issue. I don't know how you, I, it was, they said it was Justin Trudeau's phone call, but I'm sure it was the Hamilton Chamber that had a, <laughs> yes. a whole lot of influence on this I too. Agree, yeah. And the Lock Street thing. By the way, yeah. uh, and, and you guys have been great uh, as, as the chamber, of course, representing business in this community, uh, jumping up immediately with your support for the, the merchants down on Lock Street, but you mm-hmm. had some company, didn't you? Yeah, we had company. Well, I, I saw a whole bunch of people on the street yeah. on uh, on Sunday, including Andrea uh, Horvath, and uh, she started talking about the Love Lock Day that they wanted to plan for Saturday. So we jumped on board and said whatever we can do to help. And uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce as well, Perrin Beatty, the, uh, the CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Been a guest many times on this show. Yeah, I tweeted out uh, right away, how can we help? And uh, so basically what we wanted to do is say, you know, look, we've, we need to stand up for small businesses, in particular, you know, these small businesses because of uh, what happened. And uh, we got to stand up for, uh, you know, shopping local. So, um, so on Saturday, we are going to be handing out... Uh, Donuts and whoopie pies uh, on the uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. They've paid for a whole bunch, uh, five hundred, and uh, we'll be out on the street and yeah, we'll be supporting the small businesses on Lock Street. I mean, it was an ugly situation. It was completely ridiculous, just terrible. But if there's a silver lining, it's look at the the, the way that the community has rallied. I yeah. mean, like twelve hours later. Uh, my, my friend Joe Warrington from the Toronto Sun, who, by the way, is going to be in town tomorrow. He's going, he's, but he's been over here in, to Lock Street a few times since this happened last weekend. And he says, I keep wanting to go. He says, I go to Monster Donut. I can't get a donut. He says, they're sold out every <laughs> yeah. time I get in there. We'll get there at 7 a.m. Yeah. I, I had to do that on my, uh, on my daughter's birthday. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it was a tragic situation, but Hamilton never ceases to amaze me in how it responds to negative situations. And, you know, it becomes so evident how amazing this community is in the worst of times. So, you know, there's always a silver lining. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, this is obviously, uh, you know, blowing up in, in the faces of those who uh, wanted to make a statement last Saturday, and uh, they've only brought more and uh, much uh, greater and positive attention to uh, the Lock Street businesses. Anyway, and uh, we'll be over there tomorrow. CHML will be there broadcasting from 10 till 2 at uh, Monster Donuts, uh, and uh, a bunch of us will be there, and we'll be talking to some of the folks. And I've had discussions with a lot of the merchants over the last couple of days, and they're just blown away by the support that they have from the, the greater community and uh, from the chamber. There. So yeah. it should be a, a nice uh, nice day for tomorrow. I look forward to it. All right, let's talk about the other issue mm-hmm. that you uh, be able to check off your, your list of things to do this weekend. Uh, the steel uh, tariffs was a, a huge, huge concern. Uh, I know, obviously, at the, at the national level, but especially here, 
I had Premier Win on the program earlier this week, and she had, uh, well, the night she was in Ancaster, she was on the show, mm-hmm. but she had just come from the Sioux, which is another great steel town, of course, and yeah. there's a great deal. At that point, we didn't know what was going to happen. As a matter of fact, at that point, the rhetoric was no exemptions for anybody. And mm-hmm. uh, just for a second, let's, let's you know, go down that road. If this had happened and if Canada had been impacted, uh, it would have been devastating eventually. I mean, we're talking about, what, 10,000 jobs in- initially right off the bat? Well, it's it's certainly not over, uh, Bill. You know, we, well, we have a, a, yeah, a little bit of a reprieve, drop. but uh, you know, we still have to be pressing the case in Washington that Canada deserves an exemption uh, from any tariffs that are imposed uh, due to uh, you know, quote unquote, national security matters. Um, it just that it's was a rather tenuous part of that uh, justification for that yesterday, wasn't it? Well, it, what they completely acknowledged yesterday is that the threat of imposing tariffs on Canada. Uh, was all about positioning and building leverage for NAFTA. Yeah. Like, you know, so it, it, it completely, completely, um, you know, uh, took the the rug out from underneath them on that particular uh, argument. And um, But you're right, it's going to be, it could be or will be devastating to the Canadian steel industry if, uh, if tariffs are imposed on Canada. Um, you know, if, if Trump doesn't get his way on, on NAFTA, they are going to be imposed. That's what he said. So uh, we, we definitely have to continue to fight. But you're right, 10,000 jobs directly related to the production of steel um, and through $2 billion in local procurement uh, supports another 30,000 jobs. And then the, the ripple effect, um, you know, goes out from there. It's not just a, a Hamilton story, but uh, there's all kinds of jobs across the country that uh, feed into the uh, the Canadian steel industry. And, you know, it's important from our perspective. It, it's been difficult for the steelmakers to to make steel in Canada. You know, the lower labor co- or higher labor costs, uh, higher environmental regulations, you know, obviously we're, we're proud to be able to, you know, adhere to those. Um, but the, the big issue is that, you know, non-market steel is being dumped from, uh, from China and, and other countries. And so we need to continue to be vigilant. Regardless of what happens with Trump, we've got to make sure that we have the right resources um, in Canadian bo- uh, Border Services to uh, prevent us from being the dumping ground for this cheap Chinese steel. And that might still happen. The fact that China is going to be impacted, the fact that the EU is going to be impacted by this, still means that we might still be, uh, you know, the the location for a lot of the dumping that's going on. Just the fact that it may not go into the states doesn't really protect us at all. No, in, in fact, we're going to be seen as perhaps the conduit to the United States. Yeah. You know, the, these tariffs are expected to um, create uh, a, a case where 13 million tons of steel. Uh, is going to be looking for a, a home. It would have otherwise been destined to the United States. It's now going to be going somewhere else because it's it, they're they're making steel regardless of market conditions, regardless of the the principles of supply and demand, and so. Um, you know, again, so we have to make sure that we're not the dumping grounds for this steel. And the issue becomes, and, and the Americans are already kind of alert to this, uh, if steel is coming into Canada destined for the United States market, that means every single shipment of steel from this country will receive heightened scrutiny. And even the legit stuff, you know, that DeFasco is is making and, and supplying to the American auto industry is going to be held up at the border even longer, thus causing more delays, more expenses, more, uh, you know, uh, uh, unproduct- unproductivity, all of that stuff. 
so, you know, there's going to be a thickening of the border uh, as well. So we need to make sure that, again, regardless of what happens with the tariff situation, that we're working uh, in lockstep with American regulators to uh, ensure that we have some harmonization and coordination on that issue in particular. Uh, Casey is uh, tweeting here, uh, listening to our conversation at CHMO. Bill Kelly says, uh, how do these tariffs have anything at all to do with national security? Trump did address that yesterday. Uh, and, and like I say, it was in a rather tenuous fashion, suggesting that if the U.S. steel industry continues to falter, they won't be able to make planes and, and battleships. So I'm, I'm sure that had a few people in the Congress kind of scratching their heads like, really? Yeah. That's that's national security to you? Well, uh, yeah. so, but it's not it's, – uh, and, and by the way, there's still going to be some implications. I mean, you know, the fact that we have a, a stay of execution here is great uh, in the short term. But there is still going to be, and we've already seen some negative reaction from the EU about this. I haven't heard from China yet, mm-hmm. but you know there will be retaliation. And uh, we may not directly be impacted by this, but we're still going to feel the, the effects of a trade war because it's going to impact everybody. Yeah. Well, so again, he acknowledged yesterday that uh, that Canada is different and and really shouldn't belong in this whole conversation. Uh, the U- United States steel industry still produces about 70% of the steel consumed within that country. So it's actually, you know, quite strong. Um, and, and then furthermore, you know, first, it's important to have allies, right? That's a matter of national security, to have as many allies as you can. And we are highly cooperative across all kinds of, you know, uh, military, national security, all of that. Um, at all levels, we are um, a, a very high contributing uh, ally. And so it's important to maintain those alliances uh, for national security. Plus, when you look at how integrated the steel that's produced here in Canada is into various industries, including the defense industry, um, you would start to understand that actually it, it, it undermines our national security if we uh, hurt Canada. Here's the other side, though, and let, let's talk about this and go down the road a little bit. And, and like I say, I think a lot of folks were happy with the, the at least the announcement about this. But you know, Trump specifically, as you say, Keenan, tied it to NAFTA negotiations. Uh, there's got to be a payback here. Uh, in other words, you know darn well that when Robert Lighthizer sits down with Christia Freeland and the rest of the negotiating team, they're going to say, "All right, we just did you a great big favor. Now, what are you putting on the table in return?" Mm-hmm. So there's uh, – and and you know what's some of the most contentious things there. I mean, supply management is one thing that they're concerned about. Uh, dispute resolution is something that they're, they're digging their heels in on. The likelihood is Canada's going to have to give up on one of those things that they s- – to this date anyway uh, – said, no way, we can't do this. Those were deal breakers. One of those things is going to come off the table, and I, it's a matter of which one it's going to be or which two or three it might be. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So obviously, there's some, and that's going to have an Some other on. industry is going to now be in yeah, the process. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, but, you know, so first, there are some ways in which we can modernize NAFTA, uh, especially when it comes to steel. Um, you know, we need to include steel in uh, NAFTA automobile rules of origin. Um, there's, it, it is not currently in there. So you could theoretically, at this point in time, make a, uh, a North American c- car without any North American steel. So let's let's deal with that, and, and that would I think be a, a really good way of, of finding common ground and 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 um, not having to compromise. In fact, that strengthens uh, both countries. So 
you know, let's let's work on on those areas. And, and again, I talked about regulatory harmonization. If we can ensure that there will be no uh, no steel coming in through Canada that will then be destined to the U.S. market, non-market steel, then then again, that would be, I think, a, a really good win-win, uh, 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 you know, concession to make. So let's let's deal with that for sure. But we, but this underscores the need to continue to argue for an exemption on principle, um, and perhaps you know we need to be uh, filing a case at the WTO so that they can make a decision on on whether um, you know uh, imposing tariffs on Canadian steel would be um, actually in the uh, national security interests of the United States. I think that they would argue and they would rule that it is, it is not. So we should continue certainly down that role, uh, down that path, because there is no reason why this should be um, all part of the, the NAFTA negotiations. But it's it's going to be, let me put it this way, it's going to be the dark cloud hanging over the NAFTA negotiations at this stage as far as the Canadian delegation is concerned. But even the tone of the thing, of the debate and the discussion we've had about NAFTA so far, Keenan, has been almost about tearing apart not just NAFTA, but you know, even going all the way back to the Auto Pact. Uh, there has been pretty free trade back and forth and, and free flow back and forth with the auto industry. Cars going back and forth and uh, you know, how many trips across the border does each car make before it finally goes on to somebody's lot to be yeah. sold? Uh, it seems as if Trump wants to blow all that up, too. I mean, is that announcement yesterday a signal that maybe we're going to get back to the table and start talking about collaboration here as opposed to confrontation, which is what they seem to be ha- you know, doing previously when it came to some of these things? Yeah, well, I think it's an indication that other industries have also made their case to the White House over the last week and said, look, this is going to actually really undermine you know, our, our industry, the automobile industry, again, uh, first and foremost. So uh, I hope that it means that, you know, people are underscoring that exact point, that actually this is going to be harmful to the United States because of how integrated uh, Canadian steel is into uh, our industry and that, you know, it's going to result in higher prices for the American consumer. It's going to result in job losses in the United States if, if they're not able to, to make cars uh, the same way. So we do have to continue to, to make that case. And, you know, the, the, the point you make, though, is that, look, we have a really special relationship with the United States, or at least we have up until this point, right? No two countries in the world um, have a, as great and as integrated um, uh, cultures and economies as, as we do. And to me, you know, this, this is just like, you know, shiving your little brother because you want his half of the business, you know, and, and, and that is to me, uh, well, it's mean spirited. And, and you start to ask yourself, well, who would do that? Well, Donald Trump would. (laughs) Yeah, he, he absolutely would. But he's, (laughs) here's the problem with the, the Trump rhetoric among many problems. Uh, is that he doesn't back down from it. In other words, he built his campaign from the minute he walked down the stairs at Trump Tower a couple of years ago and said, I want to run for president again, to where he is right now. He has built this 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 foundation with his base based on these people are out, these, they're screwing you, they're screwing you, these people are bad for us, and his base have bought this, and now he can't walk back from that. Uh, I, what happened yesterday was interesting because I think – there's a general consensus on both sides of the border and in the Congress as well as, as up here in Ottawa that uh, that it was a rash decision to say I'm going to impose tariffs. I mean, he walked in there. The only people in the room there were Wilbur Ross, his Commerce Secretary, and I think three people from the steel industry. There's nobody else from industry or trade or anybody else. Right. And now everybody's come down on them and said, Mr. President, do you understand what this is going to do? 
So by doing this, he 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 can walk back from that because he's just saying, "Well, it's because I'm after." No, it's not. It's because people in your own party are saying this is going to kill jobs in the states. <laughs> but it's it, who knows until you know he he has his next little hissy fit. He may just impose them again. Well, the, and that's why that you know I, I I think the federal government has been doing a really good job at maintaining calm and doing what it can. You know, uh, reaching across the border and uh, and talking to people of influence. And I think this is where you know okay let's let's work on modernizing NAFTA. There's uh, those. Uh, you know, a couple things that I've already talked about that you know we can we can work on that becomes a win-win situation and allows him to declare victory and, and say that he has ultimately been protecting the American worker because those those two very things, rules of origin and regulatory harmonization when it comes to steel, would allow him to declare victory. So let's lead him down that path and uh, ultimately come out unscathed. Well, the, the the big takeaway I had from this yesterday, aside from the fact that we got the exemption, I mean, that was that's the obvious one, was this was the first time, I think, in months that, that, that Trump has actually talked in conciliatory terms about Canada. Because some of the tweets he's put out in the last couple of months have basically made, made us a target. Yeah. You know, that we're being unfair, that we're screwing him and the American people around. Uh, that was not the tone yesterday. I, I'm hoping it's it's the start of a new era, uh, and maybe going back to the way he, he talked about when Trudeau met him in Washington uh, so many months ago. Uh, they seem to have strayed from that. Maybe maybe it's time to come back to that. Yeah, I saw him say that he hopes that we will reach a a, um, a deal on NAFTA, which is great. You know, it, it's it's obvious that uh, that we're working towards that. And and again, let's uh, let's throw these uh, things on the table. And, and deal with this. And in fact, you know, we do have the opportunity here to ultimately emerge stronger as a, as a steel industry if we can take care of some of those those other matters. Except that do you take this to the bank? Because how many times <laughs> no, has he made announcements not. like this and 24 hours later, uh, you know, he, he may change his tune. You know, the, the, the stuff that we're reading, I'm sure you've read a number of the books that have been written about Trump even in the last year now. Uh, whether it's David Frum's or, or the other ones. And uh, the, the rationale here is that Trump pays attention to the last person that talked to him. Uh, and if somebody goes into the office today and says, you know what, you really should have that exempt. Oh, okay, yeah, let's back on then. And that, that's kind of scary. Well, what's scary is that Gary Cohn is out. So he was the... And he was the adult in the room. He was the the adult in the room. Peter Navarro is now likely to be the last person to uh, to speak to him. So, but we did we did see a little bit of uh, conciliatory messaging from Peter Navarro as well. So, uh, again, I'm I'm hopeful that all of the various industries and other associations, uh, business associations, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, etc. Uh, I I hope that they've all made um, you know a, an impression on the president. I know that uh, people within Capitol Hill and uh, state houses across the country have also reached out. So uh, maybe they, they realize ultimately that this would be far too difficult. Hopefully they learn the lesson of, of George Bush and what happened you know, the last time the U.S. Tried, it, tried to tariff steel. It just became way too difficult. It, became, uh, it actually impacted the economy in a negative way. And, uh, you know, so you would expect that that would be a great case study that I would lay on the president's desk right now. <laughs> well, with as few words as possible, apparently, because right. of that attention span problem. Just a uh, picture. If you could sum it up in yeah, a picture. Yeah, yeah, picture books. <laughs> I think that's what's going to work. Anyway, great work by the Chamber for Advocacy on this thanks, part. Uh, thanks so much. Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Time for the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. And yes, we are going to go to your phone calls, your emails, and your tweets. Good to see you, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing? 
Uh, I'm, actually, I'm great. The reason you do an hour late usually do this at nine o'clock, but you yep. uh, had a function already today. Uh, we had, yeah, and uh, you know, a good uh, good session with the community foundation, and um, yeah, there'll be more on today as well. So uh, so far, so good. So yeah, usually we start at nine o'clock. <clears throat> good to be here at ten, or good to be here any in any any old time. Quite frankly, uh, you'll be at Lock Street tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about uh, yeah. what happened. Uh, well, we know what happened last Saturday, but the city's response to this has just been overwhelming. Yeah, uh, I think the citizens have uh, responded beautifully. Uh, you know, if if the uh, the gang of 25 uh, anarchists or ungovernables uh, were thinking that they were going to scare people away from uh, from any part of our city or get people to not uh, participate in the businesses. Uh, they were woefully wrong. I think the uh, community at large has uh, responded, and uh, we are... Um, you know, all talking about uh, how how supportive we are of one another, and that that really has been a, a very warm and, and wonderful feeling, not only for the businesses downtown or on on Lock Street or wherever this is happening, but uh, for the city as a whole. We uh, we are resilient, and uh, I think this resilience is really coming through. But as I mentioned on the show on Monday, and and I'm sure you felt the same way, and I, I got the sense you did from the mm-hmm. comments that you were making. Mm-hmm. You're not surprised by that. I mean, because we've seen this happen before. When when the you know what hits the fan, th- this community really just rallies. Yeah, and, and you know what, this is uh, you know I, I can imagine that for the neighbors and the businesses and the people that were attending in the restaurants at the time, this really starts to look like a terror attack. Uh, they they had no idea if there were guns involved. Uh, you know, lots of noise being th- thrown around. Uh, Flares are really loud cannon crackers, so a really uh, real scary scenario, including the rocks that uh, that broke the windows. Fortunately, no one was hurt, and we're we're grateful for that. But could have been uh, very easily, and uh, rocks can seriously hurt people. And uh, hopefully, we can uh, we can let them know that we're supportive there and wherever else it might happen in our city. And unfortunately, <clears throat> there are many acts of vandalism that happen, you know, virtually every day. Uh, we have bus shelters that get smashed. Uh, you know, we have uh, storefronts that get damaged. We have graffiti that's, you know, dropped around our city. So that's a fairly uh, common uh, occurrence, unfor- unfortunately. But this this kind of act was the kind of scope and scale that we have never seen before. And that <clears throat> that is <clears throat> that is equally concerning for us and a, a real problem, I think. And we need to be sure that we're vigilant against this kind of activity. And I know that the police are going to do everything possible to catch uh, some of these individuals and bring them to justice. Let me ask you, you also sit on the police services board, obviously, as the mayor. Mm -hmm. do you have concerns about about how this was handled last Saturday? I mean, we had the chief on yesterday for the hour, and, and a number of the calls uh, to the chief were about procedure. You know, should you have done this, et cetera? Are, are you comfortable as a member of the Police Services Board with the way that police uh, handled that, that situation as it evolved? I am, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment, <clears throat> someone has to make a call, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, we can all second-guess that call uh, afterwards, uh, armchair quarterback this thing. <clears throat> the reality is it was an intense time, and they had to respond in a hurry, and you can only imagine when you don't know what's coming. It's not like this group sent out an invitation to the police and said, we're going to be at uh, the corn- uh, at Durant Park, and then we're going to go down Lock Street and create some hay- mayhem. So this is all kind of uh, happening on the fly, and someone has to make a call in terms of uh, how do we treat this and how do we respond accordingly. And so I think they took all the necessary steps to uh, to ramp up, uh, unfortunately, the events kind of, uh, you know, evolved that by the time they got their, their forces assembled, uh, this group has started to, started to disperse. So 
two officers present at the time against 25 hooligans uh, with, uh, you know, who knows what, uh, including rocks and everything else they had. I think their response was, let's just make sure that the properties are, uh, that, that people are protected. And then when we get the reinforcements, we'll engage uh, more significantly when we have reinforcements to be able to do that. I don't know that they could have done it any differently. Um, we can all second guess that, but uh, I'm pretty comfortable with that their response is uh, genuinely appropriate, and they're digging in very, very hard on finding out who these folks are and what they're connected to and uh, starting to look at being aware of those groups and also uh, pressing charges where charges are appropriate. There's one other element to this, and I, I want to get your comment, not just from a police services mm-hmm. board, but obviously as the mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Krista Boyer was on the program, and you know Krista, of course, from Tri-Hamilton, yep. and Bill Curran, who's uh, been a great supporter of the city, and Bill's been involved in a number of the rejuvenation projects around town on James Street and Barton and other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came up with a rather extensive list uh, and very frustrated individuals, Mr. Mayor, but what happened on Lock Street, certainly, but to say, we've been talking about this for the last couple of years, and we're not getting any support from the city, not as much as, as they'd like to see anyway, uh, about vandalism and about graffiti and about people that are trying to, to, to mess around with some of the small business districts. Uh, and it kind of shone the light on this, and, and I know that even at your meeting yesterday, Councillor Marula said, look, this is great, but what you guys didn't do any of this when Kenilworth was being you know, inundated with this stuff. Is this time for a, a more concerted response and, and, and direction? both with bylaw and police about these sorts of things to try to encourage business areas? Well, I, I have no doubt that <clears throat> there are going to be more vigilant in the future. Sorry. <clears throat> I should, should should swallow my halls here and get over with. Uh, there, there's going to be more vigilance. I mean, when we know that uh, this kind of massing is uh, potentially going to happen, that, that, that just kind of heightens the concern. Uh, have, as I said earlier, we, we have acts of vandalism throughout the city on a, you know, a regular basis, all parts of the city, whether it's in Waterdown, Stony Creek, uh, Kenilworth, uh, you know, so we can go down this Me Too uh, kind of scenario if we like. Uh, but, it, you know, never have we seen this kind of, uh, you know, grouping of 25 individuals with masks on creating this kind of mayhem, uh, you know, in, in a particular limited period of time. Uh, has there been damage in other places? Clearly there has. I know that the police have investigated those and have done, have taken it as far as they can go to try and, you know, a, a ca- capture people. I know that there is a vigilance in terms of uh, police presence in all of these areas. As you know, uh, specifically downtown, we have a larger police presence there than we've ever had before, visible police presence, not uh, undercover, and there's then the undercover element. And I also know that, uh, you know, when I get the briefings from the chief or the on-duty uh, officers, that uh, these, are, these are issues that they're well aware of. Uh, you know, sometimes groups pop up that they're not as familiar with, and then, then becomes an issue that they need to keep track of. And, you know, all, all that on top of, you know, all the gangs that are out there, uh, you know, individuals that need to be tracked. So, you know, I'd like to think that we could prevent these things, but it, it's, it's going to be very difficult to do. How we respond thereafter is, I think, the, uh, the best course of action for us. And if there's an opportunity for us to get uh, some intel about how these groups are starting to form, that, that uh, the police will use that to try and prevent these things from happening in the first place. Beyond that, uh, from a city response perspective, a couple of weeks ago, we passed a... Uh, uh, a resolution to actually enhance the facade uh, improvement program. This is prior to the Lock Street event to try and help, uh, you know, businesses that uh, may not have all of their expenses covered as a result of insurance. 
<clears throat> they could apply for additional dollars from the city of Hamilton in terms of a grant if it's related to uh, vandalism or graffiti or the kinds of things that are, you know, upsetting their business environment in wherever they are. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful, and uh, I think we've taken steps to do that to respond to some of these issues. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have, unfortunately, I'm not encouraging this, but, you know, we have these kinds of events happening on a fairly regular basis. So, you know, which ones get the, the most attention is, I don't think is the issue. They all deserve equal attention. But, it, but is there any way, though, Mr. Merritt, to be reactive or proactive as opposed to reactive to this? I, I mean, I'm going to tell you, uh, and again, this is what Bill Curran told me yesterday, that he did have a meeting with uh, city officials and, and police and the ward councilors, Matthew Green, I guess, mm-hmm. at, at that particular time. And, and now this is Bill Curran telling me that what Councillor Green told him is, look at, you know, graffiti and, and vandalism is the price you pay for being in business. You just have to suck it up. Now, that's, that's Bill paraphrasing it, and I'm not mm-hmm. so sure if that's the quote or not, mm-hmm. but he was very upset, and Krista Boyer mentioned the same thing about the attitude that the city can and should step up a little bit more. I mean, these are people... Small businesses; these aren't multinational corporations. Mm-hmm. This is their—you know all about this blood, sweat, and tears that Absolutely. investing in here, and they're one of the reasons for the rejuvenation of so many of these areas. Right. Well, I mean, I don't—I don't share the notion that uh, that businesses just need to suck it up. I mean, that's—I uh, I don't think that's the the, the path that we're on. Uh, we're we're going to help where we can. Now, you know, having said that, I mean, they, these are private businesses, and they are impacted in various ways. And you know, can we solve all of the impacts that uh, that happen and occur in in the community at large? No. Uh, you know, people have insurances for reasons, and uh, you know, every every homeowner or you know every car owner up at Limeridge Mall, you know, is impacted uh, through acts of theft and 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 in all kinds of different things on a on a day to day basis. So. Can we can we uh, you know offset the impacts of that uh, as a city on an ongoing basis? No. Can we uh, be vigilant and uh, you know do everything we can to provide the presence to try and prevent and at the same time follow up on uh, you know stolen property, damaged property, uh, you know the graffiti issues. We've had a graffiti uh, you know a, a task force for probably the better part of eight years now, uh, still pretty active, and uh, the police were involved and uh, try to prevent the kind of graffiti events that happen. So. I mean, there's a whole range of things happening. Uh, I don't know that it's helpful that uh, that uh, there's a finger-pointing exercise going on. I know that the police take all of these issues seriously, as they should. Uh, and I think all counselors should take these issues seriously, and we should be uh, mindful of, you know, the, the impacts it has on small business and how much it's a, a, a challenge for them to overcome these kind of vandalism issues. And we've taken steps to be helpful. So... I'm not sure uh, that uh, we can go to the ends of the earth on that one, but we're certainly taking steps to be uh, more helpful than we've been able to do in the past. Well, the idea, and I used the example yesterday uh, because we had problems on way back to when I was on city council, way back when, up in, in Central Mountain and Ward 7 on Concession Street, mm-hmm. uh, and there was vandalism and there was a lot going on. And what we did then was we talked with the then police chief and, and of course, with our other city representatives. And, of course, that had the community policing station right there. Right. Uh, and it made a huge difference because yeah. there was a, an officer there on the street, and police, pre, police presence, rather, can go a long way towards doing that. But the other element to this, too, is, as I found out, Councillor Jackson and I worked together on that uh, at that time, is that for the most part, nine times out of ten, the cops know who's doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, there's there's a frustration, I think, with a lot of the business owners saying, look, you know that the, who's doing it. You know what these guys are or who these people are. Stop them from doing this. In other words, don't always react because then I'm the one as a store owner who has to clean up the graffiti or clean up the mess. And I know that you got all these other great programs, but that's money out of that person's pocket, and it's becoming problematic. I can understand their frustration. 
Uh, I, I can as well. And you know what? I, I've had my house broken into a number of times. I mean, that, 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 that feels like a violation of your property and your privacy and everything else that goes with it. I understand the frustration. Uh, the, the unfortunate part is that uh, from a policing perspective, they have to catch people in the act. Uh, it's not good enough for them to, to you know, suspect that uh, this individual might be the regular, uh, you know, c- c- contributor to these problems. Uh, they have to catch them in the act and, uh, you know, capture them and, uh, and then charge them accordingly. And that's, uh, that's a particular challenge. So I would say uh, we, we could use the eyes and ears of our community out there. And uh, I would say that if uh, residents out there see something suspicious or, or suspect that someone's about to do something that is going to be harmful to business or any other property, that they, uh, they call the police and let them know and they will, they will respond. Now, there is a tiered response, and I think you can get into another whole layer of other, you know, concern about, uh, you know, wh- which which call do they go to first? Well, the, the one that actually, uh, you know, uh, harms life and limb is the, the, the priority call. And that doesn't happen every night. But responding, you know, to the police and letting them know, making them aware is, is helpful no matter when it happens and no matter how it happens. And, you know, I would encourage people to, to also be helpful to be the eyes and ears out there to kind of share with uh, what they know. And if they are aware of someone that's engaged engaged in the, uh, the, uh, the events on Lock Street. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want to rat out a friend, but at the same time, this is uh, harming our city. And uh, if anyone out there is aware of or, or has any knowledge of someone that might be involved, it would be very helpful if they actually informed police that they could follow through. Oh, yeah, well, I just have to, in fairness, give the other side of that story, too, because I do share the frustration, feel the frustration, and understand the frustrations of business owners or private residents that, mm-hmm. are, uh, that are going through this and saying, hey, come on, can't you guys do something? Uh, the other option, of course, is, well, why can't we have a cop on every corner? Well, you can if you want to pay for it. Exactly. Uh, and we used the example with Chief Gert yesterday about Times Square in New York, which is one of the worst, you know, garbage areas of, you know, the, all sorts of smut houses and all sorts of things that went on. Rudy Giuliani, when he was the mayor, cleaned it up, and, and they did put a cop on just about every corner. If you go down to Times Square right now, you'll see police everywhere. It costs a ton of money to mm-hmm. do that. And, yeah. they, and a lot of the same people that are complaining right now and saying, why isn't there more police presence, are the same ones that will be saying, well, yeah, well, that police budget's way too high the way it is now. So you, exactly. you can't... You can't have it both ways. No, exactly. So, uh, yeah, we could, uh, you know, and, and, when, and when it comes to tracking individuals out there that are engaged in anarchist issues or, you know, terrorist issues or whatever it is, I mean, uh, you, you know, it's almost impossible to attract, to track every individual that's engaged in this kind of thing. It takes an awful lot of manpower to be able to do that. So it's going to be very, very difficult to, uh, to keep an eye on everyone that's engaged in some sort of criminal activity in our community. Uh, our police do, I think, a yeoman's job of uh, trying to manage that particular file on a, on a day-to-day basis with the resources they have. And so if folks want to have, see more resources, then uh, we, we're going to have to add more money into the budget because 95% of the budget for policing is manpower person's power, people power, women power. Uh, the officers that are out there that are, uh, you know, on the beat, in the car, on the street, uh, adding the visibility on the street. And we have officers on Barton Street that walk up and down. And we have officers downtown, as you know, in the yellow ja- bright yellow jackets for that very reason. So people can get understand that there is a presence there. That didn't happen 15 years ago. Uh, we put additional resources into that. I think that's been very helpful, but it doesn't stop all, all issues from happening in our community. We have security cameras downtown, and, and, and you know there's a potential for some of those high you know, areas where there are some difficulties that we maybe provide uh, some security cameras so that we'd be helpful in terms of tracking folks. I mean, there's all kinds of things we can do, but they all cost money. Maybe you could borrow Councillor Whitehead's drone. Uh, <laughs> just, just throwing that out there. That's a thought. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton here, Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio, and uh, we'll go to your calls, emails, and tweets. But let's get ready to the phone calls. Uh, Leslie, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning, Leslie? Hi. I want to talk about the stadium. When's it going to be finished? When are we going to finish all the construction? Mr. Mayor? Well, the, the lion's share of the construction is done. There's some, uh, some, some deficiencies that have to be uh, repaired, and they're, they're in the process of doing that. So it should be, in, uh, I think, in complete uh, functional condition uh, by, the, by the time the season opener happens this year. Uh, we still have the outstanding uh, you know, lawsuit issues that are happening, and that, uh, I hope, will get resolved uh, shortly. Uh, is my hope, and uh, you know we're so close to uh, to getting this resolved that it really I, I can't see a reason why we couldn't uh, nail this down. I think we're close. Um, you know, it, as long as uh, you know it doesn't cost the city of Hamilton taxpayers any more money, and I think that's been our mantra all along. We're prepared to fulfill uh, the commitments that the city uh, you know demonstrated, and then some. So we we've actually put double the amount on the table to try and help resolve this thing, and uh, we expect that uh, the other parties will uh, will make some concessions to get this thing done. Are you still talking? Absolutely. Uh, so with, uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, there was a meeting with uh, the city manager and some of the uh, bureaucrats in Toronto to try and clarify some of the numbers and uh, have a conversation with uh, Mr. McMeekin on a regular basis to keep the ball mo- moving and uh, also the Tiger Cats, quite frankly. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, in the, in the next short little while we can get this thing resolved. In terms of the stadium itself, I think the deficiencies are being done and uh, hopefully by the time the season starts, we'll have a fully functional, I mean, we have a fully functional stadium now, but some of those deficiencies have been a, a burr and uh, we want to make sure that there's enough money available to get all of that work done. And that's been the case. Yeah, and we did, to your point, Mr. Mayor, talk with uh, Councillor Ferguson, who's still the chair, I guess, of the Stadium Subcommittee about mm-hmm. a week or so ago. Because yep. uh, I know there's a story in the spec about you know all this big long list. But he said, look, that's it's like when you move into a new house. Like, okay, the, the door handles have to be fixed. He says this. Then are these are not health and safety issues at this stage. No. And besides, no, we've been using it for how many years now? Three yeah, years. The, the, these are not structural issues. It's not like the stadium isn't finished. It's finished. Uh, we've had uh, you know the speaker issue that uh, that came up, and all of those brackets have been reinforced. Uh, there's been, been some waterline issues. Uh, that's been taken care of. Uh, you'll find some settling, uh, some cracking here and there, some seals that have to be redone. Uh, so you're, you're, you're exactly right. Your analogy is perfect. Uh, you know, you build a new house, the house settles, and, uh, you know, within that year, you probably have to do some touch-ups to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to fix some of the things that have uh, settled and repositioned themselves. So that's kind of where we're at. And uh, but all is good, and uh, it's going to be fantastic for this year. Nine zero five six four five thirty two twenty one star nine nine hundred. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Tom, you're next on the program. How are you, Tom? I'm very well. Yourself, Bill? Very well. Go ahead for the uh, for the mayor. Uh, first off, I, I, I'd like to say, Bill, I, I think you're the standard by which all broadcasting uh, should look at itself. <laughs> you're, I, I've never seen anybody or heard anybody call it down the middle like you, and we certainly appreciate it as listeners and fans. Are we related? <laughs> Since your brother, your brother Tom's calling in again, yeah, that's very, one of my teachers, though. very, very kind, Tom. Very kind. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Fred. What I wanted to ask was, I, I think Hamilton has been a city that has moved culturally and from a business and economical standpoint to many different ways, and has improved dramatically in the vision of its taxpayers and its citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still have got a very bad taste from eight employees leaving last January with a city uh, city operated vehicle going down to the inauguration of the American president. I am I think the I, I think what we were told is 
there was a journey to see what was going to be accomplished uh, mm-hmm. or how they could do best practices. And I'd like to know actually rather what was accomplished through Joanne Prewell and her people going down to uh, Washington with a city-operated uh, vehicle. Well, I mean, I think we've we've uh, we've dealt with that issue, uh, and I think the the statement was that uh, they, they shouldn't have gone in a city uh, city vehicle, and uh, you know that was a bit of a bit of a skate and a reach on their part. It shouldn't have happened, and uh, I think the appropriate uh, steps were taken to ensure that doesn't happen again. Uh, you know, folks can uh, are free to go on their time to uh, to visit. Uh, uh, a women's march or anything else uh, that they might be uh, you know, wanting to participate in, but uh, they shouldn't be doing it on uh, city time. And there was some some allusion to uh, that you know there were other you know events happening in uh, in Washington at the time that had uh, you know civic connections. So, look, I think we dealt with that. We've uh, put in place some proce- pro- processes to ensure that that uh, that kind of event doesn't happen again. And the uh, you know the appropriate people have been uh, been uh, uh, admonished for uh, taking the steps they have, and uh, we'll we'll just kind of continue on with that basis to ensure that uh, appropriate use of uh, city uh, city material, city vehicles is uh, is done at uh, during city time. And you know, other than that, it's uh, it's on your own time and on your own dime. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, thanks. Appreciate the call, Tom. Thanks again for the kind words. Uh, that opens up a line for your call at 905-645-3221, star 9900. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here to take your calls, your emails and tweets on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Uh, on email uh, from Bob, says, uh, very sad listening to Chief Gert yesterday and Mayor Fred today. I was a police officer for 30 years in the city, and to say that those two officers at Duran Park could not have made even one arrest is unbelievable. Stop making excuses and admit that the police messed that one up. That's from Tom. I'll let you comment, Mr. Mayor. Well, you're entitled to your opinion, Tom. I mean, uh, you know, again, second-guessing this thing, uh, you know, in, in the heat of the moment, I think the, uh, the officers made, uh, made a call to, uh, to uh, not engage directly uh, based on a 2 to 25 ratio. Uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of other dynamics that came into play here, and I think uh, you really need to hold, hear the whole story. I think the chief tried to, uh, to lay that out yesterday. I know that the uh, on-duty officer uh, uh, also did that at the uh, town hall meeting the other day. Uh, so, you know what, we can all second-guess this thing and uh, armchair quarterback this thing. Uh, I would say that uh, I support our police officers. I think they made a, the appropriate call at that moment in time. Uh, it could have gotten a lot uglier and a lot worse. And, uh, and it didn't. And so uh, I, I'm grateful for that. And I think in future, there's lessons to be learned here. And I think uh, the police chief and others will, uh, will use this as a, a learning experience. And uh, if this kind of event happens again, that they'll have a, they'll have a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a prepared response as, as opposed to a response that uh, in this particular instance was kind of on the fly. Uh, in a related issue, i got a couple of emails about this, so I'm going to throw this one in. Uh, thanks so much for the email, Bob. Uh, now there's, there's uh, some, now this is on social media, so take it for what it's worth. But now they're suggesting that there could be another incident this weekend, and they're talking about Concession Street. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and again, I'm going to put this into the same file as, as uh, the note that was left on somebody's car that caused all sorts of fuss yesterday, and we found out it was just a prank. I mean, there's always going to be copycat stuff that comes out. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I did ask Chief Gert about this, and, and obviously they're sitting down right now assessing what happened Saturday and I guess developing some sort of a protocol for anything like this that happens again. But you're right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a fluid situation, and you can't simply say this is what we're going to do. Uh, you know, because uh, I had one call yesterday on the program, Mr. Mayor, that said, well, well, why didn't they, they realize that they were going over at Lock Street? Well, how do you know that? I mean, they were at Duran Park. People that know the downtown, that's a fair distance away. Mm-hmm. If this group was at Duran Park, 
I would have thought that if they decided to go someplace else, it would have been downtown. Downtown, yeah. So it's hard to know. And, you know, so so we can all now, now that we all know the facts of, as to what happened, uh, it's easy to map out a plan. Uh, but you, if you're doing it on the fly in the heat of the moment, uh, it's hard to know where all this is going and you respond uh, accordingly. So I think they, may, they took the right step. Two, two police officers against, uh, you know, rock-throwing uh, gang of 25 uh, with flares and all kinds of things and who knows what. Uh, is is a ratio that's probably a recipe for disaster for those two officers. So they called for backup, appropriate thing to do. Uh, by the time backup appeared, uh, this group was uh, was tar- starting to disperse, and uh, so they they had little to do at that point other than uh, you know clean up the mess and uh, and, uh, and and provide a presence on Lock Street so that uh, it didn't continue to escalate or anyone didn't circle back, and they were prepared to, to gather evidence. Uh, you know, I, 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 I related to, we always get uh, second guessing when it comes to snow clearing. And, uh, you know, there's an individual in our city that has to make the call as to what kind of clearing happens, when they put the salt out, when they don't put the salt out. And, you know, and if there's a, a slight change in the weather pattern, he might be wrong. He might be wrong. But nine times out of ten, they get it right. And I think, uh, you know what, we, uh, we can second guess that uh, till, the, till the cows come home. But the reality is someone has to make the call in the heat of the moment. I, I really respect the officers that did. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, I think uh, I don't know that they could have done it any differently. And, and, and I know they, they will learn from this experience and, and apply that if, if or when it happens again. Uh, appreciate the uh, emails and the calls on this one. 905-645-3221, star 9900. I knew we were going to get one of these. This is from Phil mm-hmm. on email. When is the city going to do and what are they going to do in regards to the hundreds of potholes? Uh, what streets get priority over others? If the potholes aren't filled in a timely manner, the city can be dealt with uh, lawsuits ranging from car damage to personal injury. Phil, I knew this was going to happen uh, because of the the contract that's going on right now in the, uh, well, right down here in front of us in the main west. Right. Uh, the traffic is backed up right here from uh, Westdale High School all the way to Dundas, I think. On a pretty daily basis, but that's an exception. What about the rest of the city? Well, we're uh, there. There, you know, we've got a crew out there actively doing potholes. Uh, you know, full time. Uh, you know, day and night. <clears throat> I, I've, I've visited with some of them. Uh, you know, just recently on on Twitter, and I mean, they're uh, they're in every part of the city. Uh, you know, filling as many potholes as they can get their hands on. Uh, that the challenge is that this has been a unusually hot, uh, warm, freeze-thaw kind of winter, which wreaks havoc on our roads. It's wreaked havoc on our escarpment, in fact. And we've seen more problems there than we've seen in recent years. And that uh, is going to cause, you know, additional maintenance work to have to be done. We did in this budget round, so this year, the normal spending would be about $56 million worth of road resurfacing and rebuilding. Uh, That is going to happen this year as well. We added another 0.20, or about $19 million, to the the works, uh, understanding and appreciating that there's, there's going to be more work necessary uh, this year than we've had in past years. So we're reflecting that in our budget numbers. And we're doing uh, some additional work right now. And probably the worst stretch of road that we could all acknowledge is, uh, is Maine West. I started talking about Maine West about a month ago, saying uh, on Twitter that uh, this is unacceptable. We cannot wait till LRT arrives to, to, to resurface this road. And since then, uh, the staff have done some planning and some work, and uh, they're out there now doing the work. And we certainly appreciate people's patience to get this work done. But there's only one way to get this work done, and that's to get in there and do the work and do it as quickly as possible so that we can get back to regular traffic again. So it's getting done right now. I think that's the right step to take. And then uh, other roads will be done on a priority basis. So, uh, you know, invariably our staff come forward with lists of the worst roads in the city, and uh, they're obviously the ones that get the attention first. 
Uh, on the 19 million, uh, we decided that we'd hive off about 5.6 million dollars for the arterial roads, the main roads in our city, and do do a chunk of those, and then allow for some additional roads in all of the wards to be done. All of which will have to be approved by council at the appropriate time. So this is money that's going to be spent on roads, one way or the other, uh, and that's a that's a good news story from this year's budget. Well, okay, now you've opened the door, so I'm going to jump right in uh, because with the problem as extensive as what you've just described here, why are the the councilors and wards one through eight not spending as much money on roads? I mean, they they get what the, what they. It's a slush fund. I mean, they get, all get $1.7 million every year. And uh, we were shocked, I think most of us in the city, to find out that, for instance, the Council for Ward 1 in the west end of the city had spent no money on roads. None. Not zero, not $1. Yet he wanted the city to come in here. And now he, you finally got him, I guess, a little political arm twist again. I guess he did finally kick in some money. Mm-hmm. But as you recall, Mr. Merritt, that's what that money was intended to. When, they, when, when that whole program was passed by City Council some years ago, it was for infrastructure. And you know as well as I do that that some of your colleagues on council there are playing fast and loose with this, when buying drones or whatever, and, and, and as opposed to spending the money where it should be spent. Agree fully, and uh, and I, I would say that ninety five percent of the money does go to roads and infrastructure. Uh, but you know, I, I I've had an argument on how the the social infrastructure, which is a category that was built in actually, which I thought was unfortunate, because then it opens the door to all all manner of different things. Uh, I'm going to be recommending, uh, you know, in an upcoming, uh, you know, meeting that that any any social infrastructure uh, presentation come to council that it's not at the discretion of a councillor it shouldn't be and if there's a if there's a rational argument to, to doing something on the social infrastructure side they should be able to sell <clears throat> all of council to do that uh, I would prefer to take that category right out of the picture and just make it hard infrastructure what you know water sewers roads uh, that, that ought to be the focus I would say that 95 percent of the the area rating money that's where it goes I would uh, I would argue that most of the council do it the right way. Oh, I know. Uh, I know some had, of them do. We've, I had, we've had an exception in this particular instance. It's a rather glaring one. So to not have spent any money on the from area rating money on roads at all uh, is is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Uh, and uh, and he's now correcting it uh, fairly quickly. So that's that's the good news. Yeah, so, and, and I know that others do send a, a percentage aside to do that sort of thing, and that's right. that's good to know. But but the reality here is that as you go to the feds in the province and say, look, we need more money because of this huge infrastructure deficit. Uh, I mean, I could cynically come back to the city and say, look, you have money and you're not spending it on it, so don't ask us for the. I mean, you you've got to show that you're doing everything you can, and right now that the answer is no, you're not. So so I, I can tell you though, and you'll know this that that uh, we've never won had uh, the federal provincial government give us money for roads ever uh, so transit yes social services but yes. they should <laughs> well I mean it's an argument we continue you, to make I you know, were making we, that when you were a ward council yeah when we uh, when we uh, you know did the infrastructure plan in 2008 2009 uh, the you know the conservative government at the time uh, you know said give us a list of projects and we'll pick from the list what you uh, what what we think you you ought to be doing uh, the, the majority of our list was all roads, and uh, and then at the bottom of the list were you know rec centers and other uh, you know other infrastructure, social infrastructure projects, and they picked uh, everything but roads, and so uh, and and current current federal government provincial government is not providing money for roads; they're providing money for transit, uh, and so we're focused on uh, enhancing the, the transit funding, uh, you know, to partner up with the, the available grant dollars that are out there, so that we can do more for the dollars that we're getting. So I I you know I'm 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 going on the assumption that we're going to have to look after roads ourselves. That's why in this budget, 1.7 
a 1.9 percent increase. 1.1 of that is is capital for infrastructure. Uh, I think that's the right thing to do. We're going to have to continue to chip away at create efficiencies in our budget process and use those efficiencies to do capital works that we need to get done. Uh, yeah, we can squeeze another one or two in here. Don, thanks for holding on. Go ahead for Mayor Eisenberger. Uh, yes, Mr. Mayor. Yes, sir. I have uh, a bug in my bonnet <laughs> to speak of. I'll give it a smack. Adrian Johnson. His, a- Aiden, uh, Aiden Johnson? You a- mean? Uh, Ward 1. Yes. Speaks out of both sides of his mouth right now at this stage of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, he's had all that money sitting in his budget, as the aldermen in the lower city have, and he done nothing unless he has specific uh, pet projects that he wants to be covered. Mm-hmm. I know he was going after the uh, something to do with the theater in Westdale. That mm-hmm. was the. But I know that, that uh, in uh, in Hamilton, some of these new aldermen. They think they're, they're gods, and they hang right. on to this. Right. Uh, Don, we're just about out of time, Don, so I'm going to let the mayor respond to that. Thanks so much. So, Don, we were just talking about that, and I would uh, I would agree with that, uh, you know, the uh, the dollars that the uh, area rating provides. And, you know, I'm not going to explain it now because it's a complex kind of transfer of dollars based on, uh, you know, the, the, the imbalance that has been created over the last 20 years. But in any event, the... Dollars are there. I I think that ought to be we ought to focus on the hard infrastructure, the roads, the sewers, the uh, the water mains, the sidewalks, and not uh, not necessarily allow for that social infrastructure that uh, has been built into this process by virtue of a motion that happened uh, you know on a previous council. So I'm with you on that. I think those dollars should be spent on on some of the hard infrastructure deficiencies we have, and I'm going to take steps to try and ensure that that happens in the future. Thanks so much. Uh, sorry for the ones that we could not get to today. Our apologies, but it's uh, been a busy, busy week. And uh, we always appreciate the mayor taking the time to come in here. Uh, and if they do want to get a hold of uh, Mayor Eisenberger, the uh, number at City Hall? 546-905-546-4200. That takes you right into the mayor's office. We'll see it. you uh, tomorrow at Lock Street. Yeah, we'll see you then. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in the Mayor's Town Hall. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.